0: Oh, good morning. I know Preston already asked, but if you uh, don't have a Bible, we would love to get one into your hands. So just in case you missed that opportunity, please raise your hand high. We'd like to get a Bible in your laps. And when you get a Bible or as you have a Bible or if you're going to scroll in your Bible, please join me in John 8, chapter 1. John 8, chapter 1. While you're turning there, just want to extend a welcome if you're visiting this morning. We're very glad to have you join us. And to my church family, always a joy to assemble with you to worship the Lord. Um, I have some few prefatory remarks regarding the sermon. Today is different, it's a different kind of message. Um, It's going to be more of a lecture than it is a sermon, at least for the majority of our the message together, and, you, and you'll see why. So if you're just joining us, this is now the 23rd message in a series that we're doing calling, call, called Following Jesus Together in the Gospel of John. But we are encountering a textual problem today. And so that's the subtitle, A Textual Problem. And you'll, you'll see why. So... Uh, without further ado, I'm just going to read one verse. If you would look with me, join me at John 8, 12. This is where we're going to end our time this morning, briefly, on this verse. And then, Lord willing, next time we assemble together, we'll be looking in greater detail at this verse and beyond. But our attention is going to be focused on the first 11 verses. So with that, let me read 8, 12, pray, and then we will. you'll see where we're going this morning. John 8:12 reads Again Jesus spoke to them saying I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life This is the word of God let's pray together That's what we want Father we want the light of Jesus To not only illuminate the whole world, to not only illuminate this whole church and every church, but to illuminate our very hearts. Because we recognize and confess, Lord, that apart from Jesus, we do walk in darkness. We are enslaved to sin. We are trapped in our rebellion against you. But with the light of Jesus and the truth of his sin bearing on the cross... Dying in our place, rising in our place, ascending into heaven as the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord, we rejoice in that truth. But this morning, Father, as we look to you in your word, we're coming to a passage that requires special attention. And so we need your grace and your spirit to be with us to look and think well and wisely about your word I pray, Father, that the things that we talk about this morning would strengthen our confidence in the sufficiency, and the clarity, the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility of your word, because it's true, and it's unshakable and unbroken, and we thank you for it. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all of God's people said, amen. So, so I've said that we, the message this morning is different, most of it is, and it's more of a lecture than a sermon, though it'll get more sermonic at the end, and that's because rather than working in the text, which is what we do, we're Christians, we assemble around the Word, we open our Bibles, and we work section by section through God's Word and expose what God's Word means to us, and then we respond to the meaning of His Word, And that's called expositional preaching, working through the Bible. And so in our working through the Bible, we're coming up to a passage that is commonly either just skipped and not talked about. Or there's an issue that's often not talked about, but we're going to talk about it this morning. There is a a text problem in our Bibles. And so we're going to be looking and working on the text rather than in the text. But in our second point, we'll get to in the text. I, still know, I know that you still don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to explain it to you. Here's the outline this morning if you're taking notes. You should take notes. There's two points. The first point has a whole bunch of subpoints. You're welcome. I told you it'd be kind of like a lecture. So point number one, addressing the textual issue. The issue in the text, we're going to address it. And that is John 7.53 through 8.11. And here are the sub-points. We're going to have an introduction to this. Then we're going to talk about textual issues. We're going to talk about how... We're going to understand how the Bible came to us. How did John write John, and now it's sitting in your laps? Did sneaky Christians change it? Did sneaky Christians make it up? So we have, we have some work to do. Then we're going to specifically look at John 7:53 through 8:11, And then we're going to look at how we should respond... And then point two, we'll finally be able to get into the word of God. And we're just going to camp on verse 12. Now, while these are up, since this is technical, let me just give you a tip on taking notes. Because I know that there's all these words you're feverishly trying to write down notes. You can write all these down or you can take a picture. But then when we come to it as the sermon is unfolding, just write down one A and then one B. So that you can take notes kind of quick. Does that make sense? Rather than trying to write everything down. If you're trying to verbatim what I'm saying, you'll miss stuff. Well, with that, point number one, addressing the textual issue. So, if you look in your Bible, and you scan down from 753 through 811, most all of our Bibles are going to have the translators inserting in bold font right before um, chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. This is a famous passage. It's a famous story in the Bible. The religious leaders bring a woman... ...caught in adultery to Jesus. And they want to stone her to death. And they're trying to trick Jesus... ...to see what Jesus is going to say... ...because the Mosaic Law requires them to kill her. The thing is, the Mosaic Law also requires them... ...to kill the man whom they don't bring. So these very religious hypocrites are in violation of the very Bible they're trying to trap Jesus in. Jesus bends down. He draws in the sand with his finger. And then he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. And then beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop the rocks and and go away. Each man ends up leaving. Then Jesus says to the woman, Basically, where are your accusers? And and she says, there are none. And then Jesus says, well, neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's the end of the passage. It's beautiful. It's an amazing story. It's a beautiful passage. And if you think about what's written here, it, it illustrates the gospel marvelously. It really does. We, we see the hypocrisy of those who don't think they need Jesus. Their self-righteousness. And then this woman broken in her sin, she's caught, she's exposed, there's nothing she can do. And Jesus meets her with a unique saving grace and with these hypocrites, a grace that exposes their hypocrisy, but they go away. And if you notice in this passage, I know I didn't read it, and that's actually on purpose. If you notice this passage, it doesn't teach us anything new about Jesus. That doesn't teach us anything that we haven't already heard in the Gospel of John. There's no new doctrines. We don't see anything new. The passage doesn't seem to confuse any other truths about Jesus. There's, there's nothing that is um, controversial about the text, other than Jesus is always controversial in himself. But in terms of what the text does, regarded to all the chapters before it, all the chapters after it, there's nothing controversial. This text simply serves as a living portrait of the gospel of Jesus in action. As he told the the man who was an invalid, go and sin no more, he tells the same thing to this woman. Jesus is saving the lost and broken, and he's confounding the hypocrites. Praise God, that is what Jesus is like. But there is a problem this passage is not scripture. Silent pause. And it should not be in our Bibles. And let me explain. Now, uh, you drive down the road and you don't pay attention to billboards. The task before us right now is to explain what your translators have put in your Bible in front of you that you probably tend to drive by Just like you drive by a billboard and don't pay attention to the advertisement. You might read it and go, huh, I wonder what that means. And then on you go into the text. We're going to stop and pause on the, huh, I wonder what that means. Why'd they do that? And we're going to linger here for a few minutes. Now, we could go into my office. We could take a field trip. I could pull down different Bibles. I've got copies of the ESV and the NASB and the NIV and the NET and more. Every single English Bible at this point in some way or another is going to identify this passage as the woman caught in adultery. But then they're all going to have some type of annotation, some type of writing in your Bible. So nearly all of us are using an ESV. And so we all have in our Bible offset text. They they, they um, spaced it further and then there's this bracketed All-cap statement, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Then you have a little footnote there. It's probably the number 2. And you look down in the hyper-small font. And it says, some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add this passage after verse 36 or after 2125. Or after Luke 21.38 with variations in the text. So you're supposed to read that and go, okay. And then you just keep your Bible reading in the morning. What's going on there? That's the ESV. Your NASB is going to say something like this. John 7, our, our text, is not found in most old manuscripts. NIV simply says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11 and even the old RSV the old revised standard version doesn't even have it in the bible it's relegated to a footnote so it's not even there what in the world is going on now this is technical but you and us we as Jesus loving bible believing christians need to know why this is in our bibles And how we need to interact with what this is telling us and and what it means. And that's why we're taking this time. And since we're working through this Bible, or through this book rather, and the Bible, we're confronted with this and so we have to address it rather than sidestep it. Now, I had an experience when I was younger. um, I went to this Bible College Extension campus. Uh, I had been given an NIV study Bible and I loved my Bible. I loved my NIV. I read it. I rejoiced. I loved Jesus. I believed the gospel. It was my first Bible. And I went. And I took this class from this guy who told me that uh, the NIV was written by Satanists, witchcraft people, and it 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 uh, it rocked my faith because what? Why would I not believe this guy? He was an older gentleman um and he told me stupid things and lies and I'm really angry and I still am but but when I was 22 and 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 he's teaching that I believed it and it it almost shipwrecked my faith because it made me think wait this is the Satan Bible and I didn't know what I could believe and what was wrong and what was changed and so I went to my senior pastor and And he put his arm around me and walked me down to the Christian bookstore and bought me the New King James John MacArthur Study Bible. And so I got saved. Just kidding. (laughs) That was a sarcastic remark. I was saved before then because the NIV is good. But what happened was I was confronted with, I didn't know how the Bible came to us. I don't know the history. I probably thought just the Bible kind of came all at once. Like in 1982, boom, here it came, or something like that. So I didn't know that there's a story to the Bible in our laps and how it came to us. And so here's one of the aims this morning. The things that we're going to talk about should not in any way deviate the course of your ship faith in Jesus at all. Nothing we're going to talk about undermines anything that the, the truth of the Bible in front of us... Um, This is not an error in the Bible. This is not a contradiction in the Bible. This is a question of whether this passage is scripture or not. And our translators have served us very well by pointing this out to us. There's nothing to hide We're not a cult. We're not adding stuff to the Bible. We're not trying to take stuff away from the Bible. We want God's word in its pure form. And so having this here actually strengthens our understanding of having the true, pure word of God in front of us. In no way should this cause you to doubt any part of the scriptures or any other passage. Here, John 8 and the end of Mark, Mark 16... Those are the two major passages that have question marks over them... ...about whether or not they should be included in the text. Now, whether this is a translation issue... ...lack of clarity on the meaning of the phrase of a word in our Bibles... ...here's what happens. Our translators serve us by noting any time there's a... ...well, it could be translated this way in Hebrew or that way. So here's the reading that we think is the best reading... ...but in the footnote we're going to put an alternate reading... And you know what? Some other manuscripts say this, and some say that, and we're going to put it in there. So there's nothing to hide. It's all transparent. In fact, it's all in the light. So what does this mean when I say, and or rather, our Bibles tell us the earliest manuscripts do not include this? What in the world does this mean? How should you think about this? And what should you do with this information? That's, how, how does this impact you? How do, what does this do? So let's step back. And think together. The Bible, to begin with, we do not have the original editions of each book of the Bible. We only have copies of copies of copies. And I think that is a really, really good thing. I think it's, good, it's God's grace that we don't have the original autograph. Why? What would people do if we actually had the Gospel of John that John wrote? They'd worship it. They'd make pilgrimages to go see it and worship it. And you don't worship the book. We worship the God of the book. And so I think it's a good thing. But here's what the thing is. We don't have original editions. Instead, we have copies of copies of copies and so on. Remember, the printing press wasn't invented until the year 1450. That means prior to that, everything before that had to be hand copied. And so there was a whole profession called scribes who would hand copy the Bible. Actually, all ancient documents, Plato, Sophocles, and the Bible. But you had a professional class of believers who would copy the Bible meticulously. And so when we talk about manuscripts, a manuscript is a fancy way of saying handwritten copy. Manuscript. That's what manuscript means. Handwritten copy. Textual transmission. That's a field of study. It's a field of study, for example, of how the Gospel of John got from John's pen to your lap. How do you know you can trust the Gospel of John in your lap across 2,000 years, translation across different languages? That's called translation. So how did the text transmit from John to you, and it's still God's Word, and you can trust it? which it is, and you can. And so because manuscripts are handwritten copies, these copies of copies create family trees. And this is something that's really important for you to understand. This idea of family trees or genealogies, they call them. A family tree, what am I talking about? A family tree of a handwritten copy, it creates a lineage. And what a scholar can do is they can find an Um, a more recent manuscript and the font style, the materials used and other things can help identify, oh, that's part of a family tree because this family tree uses this type of script, handwriting, uh, all uh, lowercase letters. This one uses all capital letters and this one has spaces and this one doesn't have spaces and all these technical things, but they're able to trace This manuscript comes from this particular family. Manuscript families can also be traced, for example, by different spellings of words, which also is not an error, right? Spelling changes over time, and so words can be corrected by a scribe to accommodate, quote-unquote, modern spelling of a word in 700 versus 300 or 1,300. So it's not an error, but scribes also could make accidents, problems, they could have mistakes. What do I mean? If you were to sit down and just begin to hand copy the Bible, you could look at your copy and you're writing it down, you go back and you go back and forth. And it's it's not uncommon. Well, it's actually no, it's rare. But what could happen is accidental doubling of a word. Or their eyes are looking. And they see a word in one line and they see the same word in the second line, and they accidentally skip it and they're just they skip a line and they keep reading picking up at the same the same word if that makes sense. So you can have different spellings. you can have a word doubled, you can accidentally skip a line. They're just mistakes. So what scholars can do and praise God for the gift of scholars is they can take these manuscripts where they see a mistake and work backwards to an older, or earlier version of a text and see where the the mistake was introduced oh that happened in 1375 uh, in north africa oops we can we can see where that correction needs to be made and so they can work down to the parent text that's why i say family tree you have the parents and then you have the genealogy or the family tree that comes from it so this allows scholars to find out when and where, for example, the double word happened, or the spelling difference happened, or a line skip happened. And these family trees don't only occur in Hebrew and Greek, they occur in all languages, so Syriac and Latin and a whole bunch of other old languages that the Bible was translated into because God intends his word to be translated into all languages so that all peoples can come to hear the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Since we don't have the originals, we have to do work in the family trees. So part of the concern of this field of textual transmission is to reproduce for you and me the authentic original. That's the quest of this, of this field. Some of you should pray about getting into this field, actually. There's great need. There's actually, we have thousands upon thousands of Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts that are just sitting basically in boxes because there's not enough scholars to go through them to continue to strengthen our understanding of Scripture. It's, it's, it's amazing how much evidence we have, unshakable evidence, overwhelming flood of evidence... On the truthfulness and clarity and accuracy of the Bible that we have. Based on all the manuscripts that we have. And so this field wants to identify and correct potential scribal mistakes. And they want to find the oldest manuscripts. It's rightly believed that the closer a manuscript is to the original. So the closer a copy of John is to the actual original of John. The more accurate it is. The less time there's... ...for mistakes or distortion to be made in copying. And when I say accuracy... ...what this field is doing... ...here's what you should not think in your mind. That there's all these crazy different theologies... ...and all these different manuscripts contradicting each other... ...and saying all these different things about Jesus... ...and like one particular doctrine one. That's false nonsense. They all agree to almost 100% degree... So when I'm talking about accuracy, we're not talking about contradictions in biblical teaching. We're not talking about contradictions in doctrine or the truth. We're not talking about any contradiction with the gospel message itself, that Jesus is God in the flesh, truly God, truly man, who's come to live, die, and rise in our place. Accuracy is talking about those slips of the pen. Some of the words are so similar-looking and sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the two, like a um, capital I and a lowercase L in and, and English are the same, unless you dot the I. It's the same thing. So sometimes there's spelling issues, things along those lines. So accuracy has nothing to do with the truth of God's word. That's not in question, so you shouldn't be concerned with that. It's actually, what's the exact spelling and wording? So, talking about accuracy is any human mistake that can commonly occur. So again, accuracy is not a doctrinal issue. It's a copying issue where the goal is to identify and correct any mistakes introduced by scribes. We want to make sure the Gospel of John is actually the Gospel of John that John wrote, and praise God, as the rest of our Bibles, it is. So the bottom line right here in the middle of this, you need to know that you can have 100% trust in the truth of your Bible. It doesn't undermine anything when we're talking about this. In fact, the fact that we have family trees in different languages gives us unshakable confidence that we have the Word of God, the very Word of God. And here's what scribes would do. They would write their Bibles. In my Bible, I have Fairly wide margins, I have one inch margins in this to take notes here's a here 's a beautiful thing scribes would do because everybody, all of us love Jesus, revere God, want to honor his word, and more scribes themselves, if they were looking and they and some guy in the year seven twenty thinks that he 's seeing that might be a slip of the pen type mistake uh, he 's going to write in the margin it 's called marginalia fancy word, you're welcome. He's going to write marginalia in the margin that, hey, I think that the previous manuscript here is a slip and I think it probably should read this way. But he puts it in the margin because he is wanting to honor the text before him. So scribes would often note these types of possible mistakes, slips of the pen, or or, or concerns they would have. But sometimes later scribes Like if a scribe is saying, I don't know if it's this word or that word. I'm just not sure if the Hebrew on this one. Sometimes later scribes, in some cases, would then take all those words and put them back in the text. And then a later scribe would come and compare how that verse got longer. And all the other verses are shorter. And then correct it. So so there was this self-correcting thing that would take place about how the Bible came to us. So comparing one family tree to another family tree is an art and a science. And these comparisons allow identification of additions. Maybe the text got longer. Maybe it got shorter. Maybe there's a mistake. But here's why this field is a gift to us. Researching and comparing all the family trees further strengthens Scholarly understanding of the original text and gives us strong confidence this is the very word of God. You should have no doubt in your mind about how clear and confident you should be that this is what John wrote. So rather than confusing scripture, family trees serve to clarify scripture because we don't have the originals. There is So much more to say. But now I want to point out then, what about John 8? Why is it in your Bible, but why is there that annotation where it says some manuscripts don't include this? What's going on here? Scholarship indicates that this passage right here is a late addition, a late insertion into the text, as your Bibles note. My ESV, the earliest manuscripts do not include this. In fact, here's what you need to know. No manuscript in any language has this passage in it before the year 500. It's actually a little bit later than that. But before the year 500, there is no text of Scripture. There's no text of Scripture that has this in it before the year 500. Okay, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. The Church Fathers. Maybe you've heard of the Church Fathers. These are the first few um, centuries, 200-ish years or so, 300 years or so. The New Testament is closed. The Bible is done being written. The apostles have gone to be with Jesus. In those first few generations of men who were pastors of the Church, who were prolific writers, they're called the Church Fathers. The Church Fathers preached sermons on the whole Bible. They wrote them down. They wrote commentaries on basically the whole Bible. And they wrote those down. And listen to this. The church fathers, exactly zero of their sermons and exactly zero of their commentaries comment on this passage before the year 500. Their Bibles didn't have it. And so they didn't say it. When you get into um, the apologetics of trusting our Bibles, one of the appeals is even if evil Nero was able to burn all the Bibles in the whole world, we could reconstruct the entire Bible from just the writings of the church fathers. But absent from that reconstructed Bible, hypothetically speaking, would be this text. This passage in our Bibles did not become common in the West until the 700s. So it shows up somewhere in the 500s, but then it's not really until the 700s becomes viral, so to speak, in manuscripts. And it's in the West, and that's because the Latin text is the um, main text, and it's getting written in there. If we're to go to the Greek world, so leave the West and go East, in the Greek world, no leaders, none of the Orthodox Church comments on this passage before the 1200s. So, in their editions of the Bible, in the Greek, Byzantine, right, Turkey, go over there, it's not in the Bible until the 1200s. So, the West and the East had um, differing manuscripts there. When this passage does show up in Latin manuscripts, it floats around in different locations. Sometimes it's put after verse 36, right? So, here it's right after verse 40, 52. Sometimes it's put after verse 36. Sometimes after verse 44. Sometimes after verse 52, which is where we have it. And sometimes it's put at the end, right behind 21, 25. It's, It's added to the end of the text. And then other manuscripts have it after Luke 21. It's in a whole different gospel account. It floats around. That's all called external evidence. We're looking at manuscripts. We're seeing where it is. It's external evidence. That's why it should not be in our English Bibles. The internal evidence... When you can get into the Greek... And uh, when John writes, John has a certain vocabulary. When Paul writes, Paul has a certain vocabulary. Peter and so on. So when you get into the internal evidence... The language used in Greek here is different vocabulary than what John uses in the previous seven chapters and what John uses in the eight and a half and beyond chapters. The language and grammar changes. You can't really see it necessarily in English, but you can see it in the Greek. That's called internal evidence. So thus, at the very least, there is no evidence... This passage existed for the first 500 years of the church and was certainly not included in any manuscript. Handwritten copy, it's not in any family tree before the year 500. So if all the evidence points to viewing this, if every single English Bible in this room or digitally, you just touch one of the footnotes it's going to tell you the same thing. If all the English Bibles say this, and bracket it, and even the RSV removing it, why is it still in our Bible? 1,500 years of tradition. (laughs) Tradition. That's why. That's why. The problem with tradition is there's no manuscript legs for this tradition to stand on. There's just simply not. 500 years of silence. And so just because... There's been 1,500 years where the text has existed. Does 1,500 years of a text being put into the Bible grandfather it in when it didn't exist when John wrote it? The answer is no. And that actually has other implications for people arguing for additional additions to Scripture, uh, such as the Book of Mormon or the Apocrypha, which the Catholic Church added at the Council of Trent and part of the Counter-Reformation to the Reformation, and more, no, we don't have additions to the Bible. So what's it what's it up to now? Is it's up to scholars and translation committees and publishers to correct this error, but that it's easier said than done. This is a beautiful passage. This woman is forgiven of sin. The hypocrites are once again defeated by Jesus. Praise God! He defeats hypocrites and saves sinners. And whatever he was stooping down to write, and all of those things. There's a lot of emotion around this. This this, topic is complex. If this has been complex, there is so much more to say on this. But here's what we want. We want the truth to be true. Not what we feel to be true. Not our preferences to be true. We want our feelings and our preferences to be corrected by the truth. We are Christians. Jesus is the truth. The truth will set you free. We should never be afraid of the truth. We traffic in historical truth, not nonsense. And so that's why we want to know what the truth is. So preachers, myself included, are in a very difficult position. Do we preach the passage because it's in the Bible and people love it? It's really complicated to explain. And so do you use a sermon time to explain this passage? I'll give you your five bucks after the sermon. (laughs) And there's pastoral concern. I was talking with my brother elders going into this that one of the concerns I have is when you you open up the Bible and say, yes, see that part of your Bible right there? It's not Bible. That is not a small controversial statement. But it's something that as mature Christians and wanting to follow Jesus, we, we have to address it. You have to take the time to do it as well as possible, at least well enough so that hopefully people's faiths aren't rattled at all in Scripture. Again, trust all of it. And if you have more questions, come see me after the sermon. I'd love to address more. So, closing this point, how should you respond Four things? What do you do with this information? What do you do with this information? Number one have confident, unshakable confidence in your Bible. This is not an error. This is not, a, this is not an error or a contradiction in the Bible. This is a question of the text. Um, Luther, Martin Luther, did not like James. And so he wanted James out of the Bible. He wanted it out. He didn't like James. Um, there was debate in the early church about sections in the book of Revelation of, of whether it should be in Scripture. So so the, questioning the text is a good thing to do. It's been done. And now we can have 100% trust that we have the text. And that our, our translators decided, the translation committee decided to keep it in your Bible. Here's what you can do with it. Recognize that this edition... Does not introduce new doctrine. It does not distort any doctrine. It does not deny any doctrine. So have confident, unshakable confidence. This, in fact, is still a beautiful illustration of gospel doctrine. So we'll return to that. No teaching of scripture is challenged. Nothing is jeopardized. So no one can call it a contradiction or error. The question is, it's inclusion or exclusion, but you have the word of God in your laps. Number two, rest assured that our beloved Bible doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency and clarity and authority of scripture are in no way undermined or challenged by this textual issue. They're not. Again, this is not an error or a contradiction. It's a question of canonicity. Is it part of the canon of Scripture or not? You can and should have complete confidence in your Bible. Number three, be thankful for biblical scholars and translators. Be thankful for them who wrestle with the text on our behalf out of devotion and worship to Jesus, that they're transparently forthright, putting in all the footnotes saying, well, it's not here, but we're going to put it here because 1,500 years of tradition and other reasons, but we want you to know the Bible is divine and human in origin, we should not be surprised of textual variation because it's humans who are copying this by hand until the 1450s in the printing press. So we should, have, we should expect variation on the one hand, but also clarity and confidence on the other because of scholarship. And lastly, lastly here's, here's how you should respond to this passage. You should receive it ...as a magnificent illustration of the glories of Jesus and the realities of the gospel. You should receive it as a story or illustration in the same way... ...that you would receive an illustration from MacArthur, Sproul, Cole, or Piper. They speak the truth of the Bible. They help us embrace the truth of the Bible... But they are not speaking Bible. They're illustrating the Bible. And so that's what this, this passage should function in your reading, if it's in your Bible and you're not using the RSV, use this as an illustration of the gospel, but not as inspired scripture. Which leads us now to the sermon. <laughs> Praise the Lord. How can this passage illuminate the gospel? Point number two, Jesus is the light of the world. Please look at verse 12. Now, as I said, if you have additional questions, if you would like some resources, of which are basically all very technical, that's not meant to scare you away, but to let you know, I am happy to talk to you more about this. Because you should not leave dissatisfied or concerned that you can't trust the Bible. If you leave that way, I didn't communicate well enough, or there was a miscommunication and you didn't hear me well enough. But either way, you need to trust your Bible. So, with that then, how does this work? Let's briefly look at verse 12, which will take far more time next time. But we cannot leave without having Jesus speak to us. So we've worked on the text, let's get into the text. Jesus is the light of the world, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then these words of Jesus go on to cause a protest once again. With the religious leaders. But look at what Jesus says. Now, if we exclude or skip over the non scripture part, these first 11 verses, if we exclude these verses, when Jesus steps up and says, I'm the light of the world, the context is that we're still at the Feast of Booths, which we've looked at the past three weeks. And the Gospel of John has brilliantly labored and subtly presented to us that Jesus is reenacting the Exodus from the book of Exodus. He's reenacting the wilderness experience of Israel. And Jesus now, God's not in a tent. He's in the tent of a human body, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. Jesus is now God encamped among them. Last time we saw the miraculous water from the rock was actually pointing to Jesus... And now, verse 12, Jesus says that he is the illuminating presence of God. So, remembering the book of Exodus, Israel camped around the tent of God, rock, water, and then what was God's presence manifested as? A fire cloud that illuminated the sky, by which Israel could see. And that presence of God, then in the wilderness now points to Jesus fulfilling the ultimate reality, is that the light of Christ himself fills up the cosmos. And Jesus makes this shocking claim about himself. He's that glory cloud made flesh. That's the argument of John 1. But Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world. And then look at the rest of the verse. You have to respond to that. There's a metaphor teaching you something about Jesus, and in this metaphor, Jesus, the response should be, whoever follows me. So there's an implicit command there. You see the light, you look at the light, but what do you do with the light? You follow him. And following him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, this is the third time we've encountered this metaphorical truth and In the gospel of John. Remember we we saw it in John 1. That Jesus came as a light shining in the darkness. We're going to see this truth again. A fourth time. In John chapter 12. But I want to remind you. Of John 3. Would you turn back with me to John 3. And look at verse 16 through 21. Because Jesus is using this metaphor. He's saying something about himself. That on the face of it. Is exceptionally simple. Yeah, it's dark, Jesus shows up, it's light, he casts out darkness. But then it's so simple for a child to believe, but you could have an infinite number of lifetimes to biblically meditate on the truth of what it means that Jesus is the light of the world, and you will never plumb the depths or extinguish the light of that truth, so to speak. But what does he mean? Well, here's one thing that he means. How about this? John 3, beginning in verse 16. You, you may know this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him Is not condemned. But. Whoever does not believe. Is condemned already. Because he has not believed. In the name of the only son of God. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. This is the explanation of why. The light. Has come into the world. And people. Love the darkness What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? It means that his truth of the gospel, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the Bible with skin on, so to speak. So here comes Jesus and he is exposing to the world that this is a world that's in rebellion. This is a world that is in sin against God. Even our own indifference against God is sin against God because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so what we find out here in John 3 is that when the light shines on the darkness, the darkness hates it because the darkness does not want to call its sin sin. The world wants to call its sin beautiful and tolerant and acceptable and right. But Jesus is a rescuer, and he comes to rescue. He comes to rescue us from our own personal rebellion against God and all of the effects of the fall in the world. And so those who don't believe are condemned already, John 3 told us, and when the light shines, people run from the light because they don't want their works exposed. But whoever does come to the light... When they come to Jesus, they find out that their works were not their own works, but carried out in God. The Holy Spirit of living water flowing through them, bringing them to Jesus. So here in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So Jesus' light both repels and compels. When Jesus shines the light of the truth of his gospel, his forgiveness that he gives, it compels Those whom the Spirit is drawing to Jesus. And the hypocrites run away from Jesus. You know, what does this look like? It kind of looks like this. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They continued to ask Jesus, and he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's what it looks like when the light shines. And at once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. That's what the light looks like. It's a light shining... To take people who are in the throes of embarrassment, who are in the throes of sin, of shame. Jesus' light goes to people who are condemned by the self-righteous, the hypocrites. Condemned by people who think they are greater. People who want to use the word in graceless ways ...to drop the hammer on people... ...when Jesus' light shines... ...and His truth is revealed... ...hypocrites run away... ...and those who are in sin... ...and shame and sorrow... ...and embarrassment and more... ...see their own sin... ...because maybe perhaps... ...in this illustration... ...this woman recognized... ...that her sin in this adultery... ...was not the greatest sin she committed... ...because in each and every sin... God is always the most offended party. And here's God in the flesh saying, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, as this illustrates the gospel. Jesus doesn't condemn. The light is meant to bring thus those of us to repentance by grace through faith. The light shines as an invitation. It's like working out on the farm and the, lights, the front porch light goes on to be able to find your way home. Or to change the metaphor, you're on the rocky seas of death and destruction and darkness, and the lighthouse shines its light for the ship to find its way home. Jesus is that light. And when we come to the light, we find it was because our works were carried out by the Holy Spirit, by God in us. So the light of Jesus is an invitation to us all. Not a one-time invitation, but an always-all-the-time invitation. So if you don't know Jesus, there's all the stuff we talked about. But this is what you need to pay attention to. And if you do know Jesus, you should pay attention to all that we talked about. And you should especially pay attention to this. Because has Jesus stopped being your light? It's interesting how Psalm 119, 105 tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in our passage here in 8.12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. When, When you close this book to your life, it's as if you're trying to put the light of Christ out. Meaning, when this stops becoming the bedrock, capstone, edifice, pillars, and everything of our life. Jesus Christ, in His Word, who is telling us how to live, move, and have our being in Him. When we stop paying attention to Him, following Him, because following in Jesus is evidenced by obeying Jesus, when we stop following Jesus, even as Christians, we can begin to move away from Him, and perhaps evidence we never believed at all. So if you don't know Jesus... This is an invitation for you to not be repulsed by Jesus, exposing your sin, but to be compelled by Jesus to come to the light and be saved. And if you do know Jesus, but you find your life idle and you're dull to Jesus and, and you don't, you, you just, you're honest with yourself and you find that you don't care about him as much anymore, this is an invitation to turn back to the light of Christ. The light of Jesus not only saves, the light of Jesus restores and keeps restoring To live the life as God intended, His perfectly wise, His perfectly wonderful ways. If we follow Jesus, we will not walk in darkness in how you treat your spouse, how you do your work, how you live out your retirement, how you treat your kids, how you share the gospel with unbelieving friends, how you um, co disciple your friends and help each other know and follow Jesus. That's what it means to walk in the light. Walking in the light is something you don't do individually. It's something we do corporately as a church. So to follow Jesus is the ongoing, deliberate, willful, intentional, daily reality of you submitting yourself to the Savior, taking up your cross, bearing it daily to follow him, obeying him in his word, loving him in his word, incarnating him, so to speak, to everyone around you to live the life he's intended you to live. And so the question then that we close is this. Are you walking in the light, as Jesus says? Are you compelled to come to Jesus, stay near to Jesus, and believe Jesus? Or does this fall on a heart that is indifferent and doesn't care? Friend, if that's you, I would encourage you. You must turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and be saved. And if you are a Christian who's come in here defeated by the weak, once again, grace flows out of the Word of God to remind you the light is still shining. Turn and walk right back to the light and follow Jesus. And for those of us as a church family, covenanted together as members, let's continue to follow Jesus together in His Word. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of Bible scholars. But thank you, Jesus, that you're the light of the world, which means you'll never lead us astray. You will always lead us to the truth. You are our north star. We could set our lives and our compasses by you. You're the lighthouse. You are our everything. So Jesus, give us eyes to see, and by your spirit, empower us to follow. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.